0: Good morning, everyone. Um, I have to say I, I feel like I'm under a little pressure this morning because I only have six weeks left of the sermon series. So, It actually might be either around that or a little less, but we're right around the ballpark. So, I'd like to dismiss the children for Children's Church. If you have your Bibles, you can uh, turn to Romans 15. Uh, we're going to continue our study in Romans this morning, looking at verses 7 through 13. <clears throat> While you're turning there, um, this week, uh, well, not just this week, but in preparation, um, I, I came across an interesting scientific experiment that was done in the 1950s. Um, there was a group of behavioral scientists that put some rats in a tank of water, and they were seeing how long that they could last before they drowned. The rats lasted 17 minutes in the tank of water before they finally gave up the fight and drowned. But then they repeated the experiment. This time, they rescued the rats just before the point of drowning they dried them off they returned them to their cages they fed them they played with them and a few days later they repeated the same experiment this time the average survival rate or time for the rats increased from 17 minutes to 36 hours. Like, this is legit. I I verified this several places because when I saw the discrepancy in the time, I'm thinking, that doesn't make sense. The behavioral scientists were kind of trying to figure out how on earth can this happen? And one of the scientists responded, um, They were able to survive because they had hope, because they had been saved before. That's the only conclusion that they could come to. When there is no hope, there is despair. Now, I'm not saying that you're a bunch of rats, (laughs) but it is a picture. It's a it's a very good picture. Um, this is providential. I, I was teaching our Awana kids last Sunday night about the terrible consequences of sin. It was our, th- um, our talk for the night as we've been going through um, some very fundamental truths in God's Word. It, you know, that sin fractures and destroys relationships. It destroys relationships with other people, and ultimately, it has destroyed our relationship with God. Rather than reading all sorts of Bible verses about the terribleness of sin, and they're there, I mean, you know, we can read a lot of verses that tell us about the, the terribleness of sin. Uh, what I wanted to do for the kids is, as we, we talked about sin and its consequences, is, is look to the Scriptures for hope. What do the Scriptures say that gives us hope and encouragement in spite of the terrible consequences of sin. And so what we did was we read some verses that highlighted the positive work of God on our behalf in spite of the terrible problem that sin brings. Now these verses called us to consider the immediate and the future work of God on our behalf regardless of the trials or circumstances. And we all know that. We all know the, the trouble that sin brings, both personally and living in a world that is fallen and broken. And, and I, I think sometimes we need that reminder that there is something more, that God is working something greater than what we are experiencing on our own. And so we were looking at these verses uh, of hope and encouragement, and I made the comment that these are the truths that we place our hope in. And then I asked the kids that were there, I said, What is hope? And you know, the kids were raising their hands and they were saying, hope is, you know, having faith or believing. And you know, they were around the the, the definition and you know, all those kinds of things. And then this little boy raised his hand. He's been with us a couple years. Uh, they, his family attends another church, but it's uh, closer for him to attend our Awana program. And so they've been coming for a couple years. We've gotten to know them. And he raises his hand and he says this, hope is living a life knowing that you already won. And I dropped the mic and left and said, yeah. that's it. <laughs> Amen. We're done. Um Hope lives out of the wellspring of the truth that God has defeated sin and He has defeated death and out of the wellspring of that truth He comforts our hearts. And so it's that working definition of hope, knowing that we have already won, that I would like us to consider for a moment this morning. This world desperately needs to see people who are living with true hope. They desperately need to see it. I mean, I feel like so much of our experience in the world today is just merely surviving, hanging on, getting through one more year, one more month, one more day, or even just the next hour. We're just hanging on. And if there's anyone who should be living with this attitude as if we have already won and know oh, by the way, we have, then it should be us. So why all the talk about hope? Because that is the prayer of Paul in Romans 15. In Romans 15, verse 13, and I know we're skipping ahead, and this might sound strange for you knowing that we go through the ver- Bible verse by verse, we're going to look at the end of the passage first, return to the, the beginning of the passage, and see how it builds towards this prayer. In verse 13, as we looked at last week, also in verse 5 and 6, Paul introduces what Uh, Bible scholars and theologians have called a prayer wish. So it's like a benediction, a prayer that Paul offers in the midst of of his teaching. And and as he's praying, he's hoping, he's wishing that God would create this in his audience. He leads them through the truth of, of what he's sharing. And he says, okay, now this is what I am praying over you. And it is Paul's prayer as a result of his conclusion on the whole discussion of Christian liberty. And we've been talking about this idea of Christian liberty since Romans 14.1. And what I mean by Christian liberty is that in Christ, God has given us the opportunity to live free from rules and regulations concerning things that really have no value. If the scriptures are not clear on something, then we can't make unnecessary rules about something to say this is what it means to have a faith in God. And when it concerns Christian liberty, what it also means is while there aren't rules about everything, there will be some people that will have convictions about some of those things. And we must respect those convictions. And even though there is disagreement on how we act concerning things like food and drink, that's what Paul brought up in Romans 14, that we press on to the better things. And the better thing is the gospel. It is who we are in Jesus Christ. And last week, Paul's prayer was that we would be unified in one voice. And this week, Paul's prayer is that we would be filled with joy and peace abounding in hope. And all of that comes as a result of us functioning better together in the body of Christ. It is very important as God's people that we understand that liberty, the issues surrounding Christian liberty, should not divide, but they should bring us together. And the result of one voice singing with one heart to God is that God gives hope to us. The issue at hand is when we're fighting and disagreeing, when we're devouring, when we're disconnected, when we look at each other and think, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you more spiritual? Why aren't you like me? Or you're on the other side of it, why can't I be like that person? Why can't I figure it out? When, you, when all you're doing is comparing back and forth, you lose sight of the hope that God gives. You lose sight of the promise of the gospel that we are already victorious in Jesus And so what we're going to do this morning is begin with a conclusion and then move forward. Verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is Paul's prayer that these believers in Rome, both Jew and Gentile, they, came from, they had a past. They came from a different starting point. That they would be able to push those things aside for the cause of Christ and start together and be filled with the hope that God gives. Now may the God of hope. Let me say that again. God is hope. Some of you may need that this morning. This should seem obvious. But hope, true hope, finds its source in God. God is hope. And He is the God who gives hope. God is hope. And if hope is, and the definition of it is, living as if we have already won, you can't find your hope in anything else. And when we live in a world that is broken and fallen and scrambling to everything but God himself. Don't you see the reality of people that are trying to find their hope in everything else but God? Some people are just living for the weekend. That's their hope. Some people are just living through until they can get to the place of retirement. That's their hope. Some people are just living for that vacation that comes. But what happens when it goes? That's their hope. Some people put their hope in people, in relationships, and they hope that if they know this person or if this person knows them, and there's a connection, that they'll feel that security. And what happens when that person doesn't live up to the standard that they were hoping in? Only God can give hope because He is hope, because He is victorious. He is the one who reigns victorious already over sin and death. God has already clearly removed the issues that bring chaos to a broken world. He has defeated sin and death. It's not future when He returns. It's now. God has already defeated sin and death. And in a world that is devouring one another with its lusts and passions directed towards the gratification of the human flesh, like I'm going to put my hope in something that I buy, and it'll make me feel good, and then it wears off. I'm going to put my hope in how much money I can save so that I have security, because it'll help me through whatever calamity comes but it doesn't truly deal with the heart. I'm going to put my hope in the material things that I long for, that I wish I had, that I see others having. And then you get it and think, I'm not changed. Only God can give the hope that our our hearts are desperately longing for. And he prays that we would have it. And he not only prays that we would have hope, he prays that we would abound in hope. It's the God of hope who will fill you with joy and peace in believing. He does so because that is where true satisfaction resides as we walk with him. It's not found in the secondary issues. Within the context of Romans 14 and 15, the hope that God is wanting to develop in our lives, the hope that Paul prays that would rest in our hearts is not found in how good we are at keeping rules. Our security is not bound up whether we abstain from food or drink or whether we say, hey, it's no big deal. And we look at others who think it's a big deal and think, I must be better off. Our hope is rooted in who we know Jesus to be. And that is Lord and Savior who is victorious over sin and death. And he, Paul draws our attention around the victorious Jesus by calling us to consider that God will fill us with all joy, that where joy has the idea of gladness. It's not happiness, but it's the deep-seated gladness that God gives us, that He has removed the iniquity from our hearts, and that He has put our feet on sure ground. And He has given us the future with Him that we thought we could never have all based on what He has accomplished on the cross. And He also gives us joy and peace with Him. That peace, right? What are we talking about peace? Well, the opposite of peace is enmity. It's an antagonizing, not just indifference, but enemies. That before Jesus paid for our sins, we were at war with God. And through Jesus, we have been brought into a peaceful relationship with our Creator. It's only through joy and peace and believing that any of us find the true hope that God gives. And it's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our growing in hope is rooted in the joy and peace that God provides by working itself out in our lives through the spirit that he gives us. And I love what Paul says about joy and peace that abounds in hope. It's not something that we create and sustain. It's something that we yield our hearts to. And God says, as the Spirit is in you, as you are resting on the truth of the Gospel, my Spirit will cause in you to have peace and joy overflowing. It takes a yielded heart. It takes a heart that's willing to say, you know what? I'm going to stop trying, seeking hope from everything else. And God, I'm going to rest in what I know is true about you. the prayer for hope is important for Paul because he sees it as pointing our lives and our attention to the future. That as believers, all of us are still under construction. You notice that? You ever read the Bible and think, man, just not there yet. You're a work in progress. You're under construction. And so there is more for all of us to yet experience in Christ. So that we don't get bogged down in disputable matters about food and drink or the color of the carpet or the songs that we sing or where should we go on a mission trip? Should it be cross-cultural or should it be local? You know, all the things that, that we've made a big deal about in the church. Not just this church, but God's church, right? The people of God for 2,000 years have fought divided, devoured over things that are really not a big deal at all. And we've lost sight of the gospel. And Paul points our attention to the hope that God creates when we press on in our victory through His Son. And Paul prays that we will abound in hope. It will be multiplied in our lives. And it's with that goal that we look back at the preceding verses. If the goal is to abound in hope, then how do we get there? I mean, that's the question that Paul answers. How can a people who think differently on a whole list of various issues be rooted in hope together as one body? I mean, it would seem like if we're so different and we have so many distinctions and there's so many different convictions, then how can we as one people of God look with any certainty to the future with great hope, knowing that we're all headed to that same place? And so let's look back in Romans 15 to verse 7. Much like we did last week, There's going to be an exhortation followed by an example, and it's going to be supported with God's truth. The exhortation is this in verse 7 Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. It begins with knowing how Jesus has accepted us. This is where hope finds its roots that you have been accepted by God. The only way we can move beyond disputable matters is by imitating the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. There is no other way. There is not enough self help encouragement out there, or even desire in us to be in fellowship with one another in a way that glorifies God and imitates His Son, than to solely and wholly trust the example of Jesus to accept one another. Now, this word accept that Paul uses in verse 7 means to invite in warmly and to receive with a special concern. It is a premeditated concern. It's a thoughtful pursuit. The tense of the verb that Paul uses in verse 7 when he says, accept one another, is in the present tense. It means keep on accepting one another. It's not once and done saying, well, I did that 20 years ago. It's I accept you, I accept you, I accept you. It's in the midst of looking at a person that you might disagree with and say, you know, in spite of that, I accept you. Oh, you have that conviction? Well, I don't have that conviction. I accept you. It's not just tolerating people. It's not just avoiding, you know, like, you know what that means, right? You disagree on things, so, you know, you're on this side of the room and they're on this side of the room and you never even cross paths because you're like, hey, we're just too different. No, because of Jesus, we accept each other. And you know what I've found in in Romans 14 and 15 don't really deal with this a whole lot, but oftentimes we divide in the church, not even over Christian liberty issues, we divide over personality issues. We divide over, I, I just... Don't care for the person that that person is. And Paul's like, what is wrong with you if that is your motivation in, in separating from what God has brought together? Christ has accepted you, and now you accept each other. Paul gives the exhortation, and now he gives us the example. Now, I want you to take a moment, and I want you to forget about every other Christian that you know. I know it's hard. Everyone that you disagree with, everyone that you struggle to accept, everyone that you feel like isn't where they should be in their walk with Jesus. Now, I want you to consider yourself. The text tells us we are to accept one another as Christ has accepted us. Now, listen to what the Bible tells us about ourselves before we came to Christ. First, in Proverbs 6 and Proverbs 11, we were hateful to God. Ecclesiastes 9 3 says that we were full of evil. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that we were desperately wicked. Isaiah 29 and Matthew 15 indicate that we are far from God. Romans 1 21 says that our hearts were darkened. Psalm ninety five verse ten says that we are prone to error. Hebrews three twelve says that we are unbelieving. Ephesians four eighteen says that we are blind. Jeremiah 17:9 says that we are deceitful. Isaiah 44:20 and James 1:26 says that we are deceived. Hosea 10 verse 2 says that we are divided. Ezekiel 3:7, Mark 10:5, Romans 2:5 says that our hearts are hard. Proverbs 12 and 22 both say that our hearts are foolish. Psalm 101 verse 5 and Jer- Jeremiah 49:16 says that we are proud. Jeremiah 5:23 says that we are rebellious, and Proverbs 12:8 says that we are perverse. And there's oh by the way more, but I just didn't read them all for you. That's where we were. That's who we were. That's where we came from. These are not just minor things. These are huge things that God had to deal with for us to be accepted in Christ. That's where we came from. That is who you are before you came to Christ. And remember, you didn't ask for a Savior to come, He came on His own volition. By the will of the Father and the plan of God. God, in His rich mercy, first loved you. And in that great love, gave you exactly what you needed to die to self and become alive to God. His Son, His perfect, holy Son, died on your behalf and paid the penalty that you never could. Now listen to what happens to your heart after it is renewed through faith in his Son. Second Chronicles nineteen three, Ezra seven ten and Psalm ten both all indicate that we are prepared now to seek God. Psalm ninety seven verse eleven and Psalm one twenty five verse four says that our heart is upright. Psalm seventy three verse one says that we are clean. Psalm twenty-four and Matthew five says that we are pure. 1 Samuel 24 and 2 Kings 22 says that we are tender. Acts 2 and Hebrews 10 says that our heart is single and sincere. Luke 8.15 says that our heart is honest and good. Psalm 119 verse 112 and Romans 6.17 says that we are now obedient. Psalm 4 and Psalm 77 indicate that our heart is meditative. It thinks on the things of God. Psalm 84, verse 2 says that we are desirous of God. And Psalm 112, verse 7 says that we are confident in God. It's a far different picture than the verses that I read before, right? Where we were, where we came from, how we were not only perceived, but that was our reality in in the sight of a holy God. And now as a result of Christ who has accepted us, this is who we are in God's sight. God's promise is that all who come to him through faith in his son are truly his and set apart. We are his special people. If the perfect sinless son of God has accepted us, let me just replace us. If the perfect son of God is able to accept a sinner like me, then why on earth would I not accept you? That's what Paul was saying. When it concerns issues of liberty, yes, have convictions. But don't drive your stake so deep into the ground that you cannot move from it when it comes to someone that thinks or acts differently concerning that same issue. If you're in Christ, He has accepted all of us. And we accept each other based on His example. And so what Paul now does is he shows us the way that Christ has accepted us. In verses 8 through 12, we read, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And I'm just going to stop there for a minute because you have to understand that who made up this church in Rome were two groups of people the Jewish people and the Gentile people. And they were the two groups of people that, as Romans 14 opens our eyes to the, the idea of liberty, say that there were some Gentile Christians that had no issues concerning certain things that the Jewish Christians had. And there were Jewish Christians that had no issues concerning the things that the Gentile Christians had. They were looking over each other. And not only were they looking over those things, but they were looking at each other with disdain and and frustration and say, why aren't you like me? Why don't you love God like I love God and do these things? And and Paul settles it all and he says, listen, that's not the right conversation to be had. The right conversation to be had is that all of us come equally to Jesus because he has equally accepted all of us. And now he says this is how he did it. First, in verse 8, he came as a servant to the circumcision in accordance to what was said or to confirm the promises given to the fathers. That is all language that highlights the ministry of Jesus to the Jewish people. That Jesus became a servant. He wasn't a king He came to serve, to serve those people accordance to the promises, the covenants, all of the things that God said to the fathers. Who are the fathers? The forefathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Judges, all those people. God was making promises to them saying, I will come and restore you and you will be my people. When Jesus came, He fulfilled those promises and He accepted the Jewish people. They were accepted by faith in the Messiah. They were not accepted because they were these covenant people and just because they belonged to the covenant, no matter what, they were always going to be there and approved by God. They were approved by God because they believed in the Messiah who was sent. And then Paul says to those Jewish people, Okay, you've been accepted. I also want you to consider the other group of people, the Gentiles. Now, he spends a little more time developing this argument of his acceptance of the Gentiles because this would have been a big deal for the Jewish people because they would have thought, hey, I know that God loves the Gentiles, but when they looked at the Old Testament, they always saw this as the Gentile people would come in through the covenant of faith and be proselytized as a Jewish person. They would be brought in under the covenant. And Paul uses the Old Testament scriptures to show Nope, that's not what God did when Jesus accepted the Gentiles. And it was always God's heart for the Gentiles to be accepted by God apart from the Jewish people. And so he says in verse 9, "...they have been accepted, the Gentiles, to glorify God for His mercy." As it is written, therefore I will give you praise to you, or I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, and again praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles. You see that again and again, Paul says in in these verses, this is what is true. God has accepted the Gentiles. And this is also true. The Old Testament scriptures shout that it has always been God's plan that he was going to bring the Gentiles to himself. And you know why that's important to us? Because if you're not Jewish this morning, that's you. You are in those promises, Everything that was written, oh, by the way, in the Old Testament, the book that was primarily written to Jewish people in four different Old Testament citations, Paul quotes the whole Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings. He quotes from the Psalms, he quotes from Deuteronomy, and he quotes from, what's the final one there? Isaiah. He quotes it all to prove that That everything in the Old Testament pointed that God was going to accept these people apart from the nation of Israel. That the Gentiles were going to step out and be approved by God. That is so important for us to see. It was important for this church to understand that through Jesus, God has accepted the two groups of people who made up this church and neither group could look at the other and say that they do not truly belong because they didn't keep certain dietary laws or that they drank certain things. Neither group should despise each other because they disagree on how to handle certain issues. Both groups should look at each other with praise to God for bringing them into the family of God. And then you read what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, and you understand that God tore down the barrier between Jew and Gentile, and everyone comes into the house of God, and there's no separation, there's no division, there's no groups or camps where, hey, I started here and I'm over here, and you know, yes, we all fit under the roof, but there's people that have better seats. No, we all have the access we all enter into the holy place because of Jesus. And so we conclude again with the reason why we are to be unified in Christ, to receive and multiply in the hope that God gives, that we certainly have already won through Christ, who died for all of our sins and have been accepted by God. No matter what your past is or what group you formally belong to, you have been accepted by God. And He has done that for all of us. And So let us press on together in unity with one voice, abounding in the victory that Jesus has already secured, so that we would live with all joy and peace in believing together. I cannot think of a better illustration to what Paul is saying here than to celebrate the Lord's table together. First, we come to the table because Jesus has made room for us. He's accepted us. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this morning, You have a spot at the table of the king. If you don't know who Jesus is this morning, know this, that he will never turn away anyone who comes to him through faith. And you will have a seat at the table of the king. For every person whose sins have been paid for by the blood of Jesus, there is room there is room for all of us. The second thing is we proclaim his death together when we celebrate the table of the Lord. We acknowledge that Jesus did for us what we could never do. Jesus has removed the guilt and the shame that is associated with our prior life. We are a new creation in him. And Jesus has accepted all of those who have trusted in his finished work. When we sit at the table and celebrate what Jesus has done on the cross, when we acknowledge his sacrificial death for our sins, God doesn't look at us and he doesn't say, yes, I know you're doing that, but remember what you did. It's gone. And finally, we celebrate His victory. The story for Jesus did not end with his death on the cross. No, it culminates with his resurrection, confirming that he holds the victory over sin and death. And if you talk about hope, that's what hope is living as if we are already victorious. Church, this table brings us together, it brings us back to the cross. And it assures us together that what Jesus did was all that we ever need to live a life that is pleasing to Him. And so what we're going to do for the next few moments is I'd just like you to take a moment silently with God. Part of our responsibility in partaking of this cup is that we examine our hearts And that we praise God for His forgiving grace. And even now, in Christ, if there's any sin in your life, the Scriptures call us to confess that to God to know that it is forgiven. Paul warns us that if we do not do so, we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. We confess it with joy knowing that the Savior that died died for those sins. And after a time of silent prayer, our worship team is going to come up and we're going to sing a verse of a song as we express our love for God. And then we will share in the table together. And so let's pray silently to ourselves.